shoes are setting up, and I'm looking totally whipped. Beefcake! Beefcake! Sweet! When I regained consciousness, I found myself lying flat on my back with a sizable fluorescent light staring down at me from the ceiling. Bloody painful, that. The old eyelids would not stop blinking away against the glare. Vaguely aware that I'd been choosing my battles unwisely, I gave up the struggle and let my eyelids close. Best to let the fog clear, get my head around the current situation. First things first, I made a mental note to do something about those bastard overhead lights the minute I was better armed and back on the front foot. A few seconds had passed when fear jumped inside me and my eyes snapped open again. Bloody hell. The fluorescence. The antiseptic smelling air and that dreadful machine bleeping behind me. Something was definitely not on the level here. With a glance in all directions, I tried to sit up, but found my left wrist, then my right one, then both ankles strapped down by four-point restraints, and to a gurney, no less. Good God, what have I gone and done this time? Alerted by a murmur of voices and something moving nearby, I tilted my head and saw more gurneys and people in white lab coats passing by out in the hallway. Time for my best shot at a medical evaluation. Location, unknown. Circumstances, unclear. Mental state, a touch of terror on that front. Conclusion? Still alive, apparently. The rest of my status looked dodgy. Figuring one of those blokes in the white coats might have an answer to this, bollocks, I called out. What's the crack here like, mate? Silence. Straining my neck further forward, I saw that my track pants had been pulled down around my knees. My designer t-shirt was up around my chest, leaving exposed my pasty underbelly and thighs. A bedpan of some sort was tucked under my Calvin Klein underwear. Out of the jumble of voices and passing forms, a black lady with a grey and afro appeared overhead and stared down at me. The fluorescent lights formed a halo around her whole head. Michael? Do you know who I am? I stared up, racking my brain for an answer. Do you remember anything about yesterday? In the chaos of what passed for a grown man's mind, I scrambled again, trying to piece together the previous few days, but nothing came to me. No. I... I don't remember anything. Nothing at all, the lady said with a slow shake of her head. I shook my head in return. Where am I? I thought to ask. Santa Monica, she said. UCLA Medical Center. So... Still in America, north of the Mexican border, and in a fairly decent neighbourhood. Thank God for that. I fought momentarily with the restraints and fell back against the bed. Would it be too much to ask to get me out of these bloody things? Are you hungry? she said in response. I'm ravenous. Another nurse soon appeared holding a wooden tray. The tray had three small bowls scattered on top of it. The nurse left, and the old black gal soon had a spoonful of quivering green jello coming my way. I strained forward to meet the food. All I needed was for her to mimic an aeroplane. A few shots of that jello and I was done. The other nurse returned, 
Michael, I can release one arm and a leg from the restraints as long as you show no signs of aggression. No fighting, I assured the nurse. I'm done. She released my left arm and right leg and I allowed them to dangle freely over the bed. That small allowance of freedom felt like quite a luxury. Can somebody tell me what's going on? We're just trying to find you a bed in another hospital, the nurse who had emancipated me said. We've checked, but there aren't any available. I stared blankly. We have to follow certain procedures under the circumstances. And what circumstances would those be? The anxiety in my voice had elevated with the question, along with the thickness of my Manx accent. You're on an involuntary psychiatric hold, she told me. You've been very sick, so we're legally required to hold you. It's for your own safety. I really need to go home. Go home where, Michael? The Isle of Man. You must be kidding me. No airline will take you in this condition. The look on my face said, you've got to be taking the piss. But she wasn't. Both nurses went out, leaving me in my restraints. My soul-searching commenced. The self-recriminations and self-loathing. The desperate attempts to explain my fall from grace. Only a few weeks earlier, I'd been relaxing in a sprawling hacienda, a kept man in what was one of the wealthiest communities in California, or the world for that matter, with a couple of acres under my ass that the well-heeled locals were cocky enough to call a ranch. The type of place where the rich go to pickle and only the gardeners can understand the street names. The last thing I recalled, I was nicely stoned on Oxycontin. A cold lager in one hand, my bare feet propped up while watching the first game of the baseball playoffs on Natasha's home theatre system. Natasha was out there flipping filet mignons for two at the poolside bar. Her lovely face was smiling up at me from the cover of a glossy fashion magazine on the coffee table. Easy to gloat back then. A big fuck you to every teacher, employer and drunken bastard who had ever questioned my ability to succeed. So how the hell did I get from there to here? As it turned out, the joke was on me. Only I could have ballsed up so much good fortune. Hello humans, welcome to the N-Word, brought to you by Martin, that's me and Matt. That's him quietly over there. Hello. Oh, I'm on Zoom. Yeah, we're back to the old Zoom. Yeah, well, with good reason, because it's not about uh, necessarily being in lockdown. It's a bit, a bit of a hike and a travel. So just before we introduce our guest, obviously, there was a long introduction on the podcast there, and that was our guest reading the first chapter of his book. So those watching on YouTube, his book, Hunting Concrete Lions, Michael Cannon, uh, you'll see here and is available to buy. Uh, Michael's on Zoom with us now, so thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Nothing. It's good to hear a Manx accent halfway around the world. You go. I, haven't, I haven't lost it since I've been over in America. No, no. So for our listeners, where are you right now? I am in San Diego. Okay. North County, San Diego. Yeah. And I presume it's lashing with rain. It's absolutely... Well, you can maybe see out there, it's heaving it down. <laughs> with sunshine rays. And I notice you are um, well equipped for the hot weather there with your, your jacket on and your hands <laughs> on there. Yeah, indoors with a jacket on, yeah, and a cup of tea to try yeah. and keep you warm. So, first of all, thanks for reading the, the, the first chapter of your book. I thought it was good for our, to really set the scene. And when, when I, I, we touched on before, when I started the book myself, 
it very much kind of encapsulates, whoa, how, how did you get to this position of uh, being tied down in a psych unit? So uh, maybe we can now reel right back to the, back to the early days. Uh, you're a Ramsey boy initially, is that right? I am Ramsey. The first tw- 19, 20 years were in Ramsey. Right. And fam- family from the area as well, they were Manx as well, were they? Yeah, Manx family. Um, all the family still live there. Right. So the, the roots are all, all Isle of Man. Do you miss them? Do you miss the Isle of Man? I, I do. You know, that there's definitely, I was getting prior to the sort of last year, I was getting back probably at least once a year right. just to catch up with family and friends and stuff. And, and I love it. You know, I, I love to go back. It's, it's the roots. And I also don't mind coming away as well. So it's, it's getting it in small doses is, is, is a bonus. The, obviously, we'll, we'll kind of go into your story. And so the idea is to, uh, it's important people go out and buy the book, but uh, just to give a, a bit, and hopefully we can chat today, just kind of a high level, uh, sort of big part of that book. But so to, that story does coming back to the Isle of Man, it does it, is it difficult at times with, with, the, with your, appreciating it's a small Isle of Man and people can be knobheads uh, as well? It's, well, you know, I think that it was difficult when I first got sober and I came back the first couple of years of coming back, it was like, it felt like going back to the scene of the crime, you know? Um, and, and there's something in recovery called, uh, what do they call it? They call it euphoric recall, which is, you know, I mean, I have a, a an addiction background, alcoholism and the euphoric recall the drinking doesn't start with the first drink. It starts with the memory of the first drink. Yeah. So when you go back into, say, a bar, I remember walking into the Royal George in Ramsey, and I was like, fuck, you know, I had this wave of, I was sober a couple of years, and I had this wave of like, man, I had some fun in here. And you have that sensation of remembering all the good times, and that can be a catalyst for the drinking. Yeah, right. So there was lots of um, places, even places where I did heroin and, I remember driving down the front once in on the North Prom in Ramsey and thinking, God, I remember, you know, doing heroin here. And you have that memory. I had that memory of, okay, that's, but that's part of the, the recovery process. And is that memory, does that leave a, at that moment, is that a sweaty palm memory? Is that a, it, it like, can are actually, you good or bad? How would you class that? It, it can actually be good. It can be like um, this sort of, romantic vision of what it was like you forget about the catastrophe and remember oh do you remember the good old days when you were drinking and yeah, and, well, and that yeah, obviously yeah. that goes after a while the longer you're sober the the body starts to readjust and um i don't have that at all anymore i would say but those that early stages it was it was interesting that's what i say when you get into recovery i remember driving past the 7-eleven in the valley in los angeles And I remember I would always score drugs outside the 7-Eleven. And I'd been sober about 45 days. And I remember driving past this 7-Eleven, there was a guy stood outside and I had this overwhelming feeling of the excitement of scoring drugs and like, wow, I could go again. And it was like this whole inner drugstore was lit up with the idea. So it's, they call it euphoric recall. They've done all these scientific studies on it as well to to really uh, figure it all out. So those early days then coming back to the Alabama through that, was that, did you have a pit of dread in your stomach about coming back, worrying there might be a relapse or there might be a... I, 
I, well, one of the things I had anxiety about was flying because I would always get absolutely hammered on the flight. I had a really, you know, a severe anxiety disorder. I won't sugarcoat it. I mean, it was a severe anxiety disorder and I couldn't fly without taking, you know, a handful of Valium, half a dozen pints, get on the plane and it would just continue. You know, so when I got sober, I was like, okay, I've got, I've got to go back to the Isle of Man here, but I haven't got my medicine. I haven't got, I got no, no crutches here. So that was, that was a challenge, but I did it. And I think all the things you do first when you get sober, um, there's always some anxiety around it. It's like you have to go through this systematic desensitization of putting yourself in situations and knowing that you're going to be okay and knowing that you're supported and then moving through them and you gain confidence from doing it. So back to those early years, growing up, Ramsey, quite a bit of sport, I believe. Did a bit of sport. And... I Yeah, I grew up kicking a football from as early as I can remember. And the old man played for Ramsey and I think he coached the Ireland team at one point. So football was everything. Absolutely. I, I loved doing a bunch of sports as well. I, I swam and I, I did a lot of athletics. I was sprinting. I represented the island at a couple of sports. So, yeah, enjoyed, a, enjoyed doing plenty of sports. What kind of, what were the island representing? I ran for the island. I remember going over to Manchester. Um, I got asked to swim for the island as well. Right. And I was playing badminton at one point uh, with the island team. This was really young. This was yeah. like 10, 11 years old. But uh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, it, life was all about sport. Right. And when did, uh, when did, so I, 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 I'm assuming here that alcohol was maybe that first taste uh, of the, use the word where addiction comes in. What age was that? Do you recall? I remember having my, I remember feeling a drunk sensation when I was seven. Right. So I was at a, Friends, it was at my dad's friend's party, and I remember they'd given me a white wine spritzer, and I just remember enjoying it. And I remember going back to the kitchen and having some more, and then having a bit more, and then I just remember always needing to go to the toilet. That was that was the one memory. I was like, I kept needing to go to the toilet, and I remember I just felt different. You know, I, I just felt different. So. I wouldn't say I was a fall down drunk at seven, but I remember having that sensation of, of alcohol yeah. at that age. And do you think we've spoken to uh, uh, various different kind of people around addiction side of it? Do you think that's, uh, that's just ingrained in, obviously only speak for yourself in that regard, is, do you think that's something that's just ingrained that no, no path in life would have deviated for you to not go through what you went through? appreciate that the depth of whatever happened differs, but ultimately that, that addict, you are an addict, you have that addictive nature. I think there's definitely a genetic predisposition to addiction. Do parents have it, if you don't uh, ask them? No, absolutely. Um, you know, neither parent are really drank at all. Um, it manifest in other ways, whether it's a bit it, yeah, absolutely. It comes yeah. out in other ways, and I would say, you know, having spoke to my parents, I learned that I know on my dad's side there was 
he started to talk about one of his uncle, his, you know, his mum's brother, who was the town alcoholic and yeah. all the stories. Once you start getting into, you know, once, once we open up about this stuff, it's surprising what comes out. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And uh, but there's definitely other factors. I, with the percentages, I would never be that certain of. They think it's about forty percent genetic predisposition. Then you've got environmental, social, um, you know, trauma comes into it. Yeah, life experiences can impact it. But trauma is the big one. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, the guy we spoke to from Isle Listen, which is a local uh, mental health charity. He talked about. Uh, about exactly as you described it there. So there is no clear line of it's 20% of this, 10%. It's that combination. And I think, I, I guess, then different categories, because we're all ultimately individual, it affects people. Uh, the balances are different in people, and it doesn't mean because you're more of one or less of another that you end up down these different paths. Right. So the uh, I suppose I look back at 14, maybe 13, I might have a couple of drinks down the, down the back lane that someone's brought some white lightning or something like that. Sorry, yeah. Dad. Uh, is that something, is that how you migrated to then, or was it going to the... I, you know, I, I mean, I can remember it distinctly. Um, there was, one of the big things is, and, you know, during the conversation, there's no blame in anything, you know, the parents and stuff, but I remember being particularly affected by the divorce of my parents. And, and that certainly had a big impact on, you know, my, myself, how I, how I feel about myself. It, you know, I became very isolated, very lonely. Uh, what I now recognize to be like a depression, um, angry, sort of rage, lots of rage, and a complete disconnect from the feelings and emotions ultimately. Right. And when I drank, I remember probably drinking, this was 11, so 11, 12 years old, when I had a drink, I just felt differently. You know, I, I, I felt better. I was able to connect with people a bit better and, and have a laugh and a joke, and the world just seemed like a better place. Yeah, right. So where, where were you at that stage getting that alcohol from? Is that like parents back shelves, you know, or is this friends, or? Well, I'd gone from sort of, playing a lot of team sports to like, I don't want to be around anybody. And I took up golf and golf was one of those sports that you can do on your own. If you want to do it, it was a way of just getting out. It was a way of just, you know, again, isolating. And I remember being at the golf club and, and getting bought drinks or getting one of the older guys to buy drinks or finding a couple of the older lads who would go down to the off-license and buy four cans of lager and sit in the locker rooms at the golf club and start drinking. And then it'd be a friend's house, and then the, the pot would come out. And it was just like an ongoing, once it's on, it's on. Once you've found something to make you, once, I'd found something to solve my problem then. You know, I'd found my medicine, so. What do you think, uh, not necessarily to focusing on because it might not be funny of my parents divorced are probably at a similar age and uh, I certainly know it affected me in, 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 in ways as well. Do you know why particularly? Were you a sensitive child do you think then or? Definitely very yeah. sensitive, um, shy, uh, you know I think a lot there was it was this, I'd say when I look at pride like a healthy sense of pride is lost 
you know, my dad was coaching the football team. Mum was a, a teacher at school. And all of a sudden, you've got this very tightly knit family. And, and nobody, nobody's parents were getting divorced at the time. And so it went from being like, okay, we're all part of the community. And next minute, the parents are separated and, and you're walking around feeling paranoid. And like, is everybody talking about me? And then you want to sort of protect the family from shame. So I started lying about why they were separating and started embellishing stories about what was really going on. And people know that it's hard to protect a lie in Ramsey. You know what I mean? It's God bless you. It's ambitious. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's good. The Alamang grapevine uh, yeah, works, works yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, that, that drinking aspect at that stage, was that like, like obviously doing it with a few mates, I guess, were most of them older typically. Then. A few of them, yeah, three or four years older right. at that time. Yeah, right. And so that that was helpful. Uh, as in to buy. To, to buy the stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah right. um, but again, you know, I look back and there's no blame. I chose to do it. Yeah, you know? yeah. I chose absolutely. to do it. Yeah, I wanted to fit in. But ultimately, I made the decisions to drink, you know, and, and I, and I and many a times I would have been encouraging it. I'd have been pestering people to get me drinks, yeah. you know, so... So that, that sort of, you go, say, 1 to 12. School, school, were you pretty head down, fairly academic? And then did it go off the rails after then? Or were you, were you always managed to kind of... I was, my early years, I remember being at Albert Road School. And, and I did very well academically. I remember we used to have year prizes, you know, and it would be the top six in the year. And there was always two girls who were super studious who would win. And I remember coming third one year. So I was obviously, you know, there was, you know, I was, I was pretty decent in that area, right. you know. Did it um, start to suffer as you then started? 100%. I just, it nosedive. Yeah, I couldn't concentrate. Um, the confidence goes, you know, when the confidence goes, it's, it's just a, it was just a, a train wreck, really. I mean, I dropped out of everything. I dropped out of the team sports. The didn't want to know at school, started to be the class clown. Um, you know, any looking for attention, not wanting any attention, but looking for any way to get attention. Yeah, yeah. So we chatted with Graham Klukas, who uh, again, I think before Dean was doing heroin, and he talked about that. It was then a kind of deflection of attention. It was, I want to, I don't want attention, but I do, and therefore uh, act, act out, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so at that stage, was that was that then just I say just, but drinking at weekends, or would you drink it in what what we still now call school nights, where you were actually at school? I think it was just any time I could. Really, I remember being at the golf club in the evenings, and if if anybody, if the opportunity to have a drink came up, I'd be on it. And did um, anyone? Did it, was there anyone around you at this stage? Family, friends, anything saying, just watch what you're doing here. You know, I was coming home. Obviously, I was living with my mum and I'd be coming home at night and I'd be stinking a cigarette smoke and, you know, you can smell it. And so I was doing everything I could to hide it, for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but, but no, there was nobody really, you know, dad, I guess, was the, you know, this sort of iron ruler type figure who was laying down the law. 
And then obviously he's out of the picture. So there's no real, and it's interesting because it feeds into that whole male role model type thing that we need healthy male role models to shape us and guide us. Otherwise we're in trouble. Yeah. You know, the women play a certain role and the, and the males play a certain role. Not that they're any different, there's any discrimination, but it's, it's you know, there is certain things that we need. And I, I felt like that was lost. Yeah. And now the burden was on mom and I know she was going through all her own stuff and, and trying to raise two kids on her own and, and I'm behaving the way I'm behaving. And so, yeah, challenging stuff. To, to, to jump around a bit, have they, have they read your book? Yes. I gave it to them before I published it and I said, look, this is it. If you want to take anything out, do it before it gets published. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of things my dad... He was like, there was a couple of things he was like, I'd rather that would stay out. Yeah. So I was like, no problem. I, I don't want to take the lifeblood out of the book because, you know, if we, the point of the book is to really get at the story and say, the generational dysfunction stops here. You know, if I, if I go and hide, if I go and say, okay, this is not what really happened. This is what went and I sugarcoat it all. I'm not being of any help to anybody. Yeah. And so, there ha- and I, so I said, look, if there's something you find particularly intrusive, let's edit it out or let's, you know, portray or give me your side of the story and make sure we have a balanced view yeah. so that it doesn't look like I'm blaming you. It doesn't look like you're the bad guy. And actually, and actually the thing that he cut out would have made it everything make sense about his story. OK, yeah. yeah. So he was trying to protect his side of the family. And I said, look, that's absolutely OK. But if people understand that, they will know that you were doing the very best you could with, with the upbringing that you had. Yeah, yeah. Like you say that, it's, in, it's interesting because that generational thing it is, and like you, again, you, you'll tend to find, you know, just from my own kind of research, you'll tend to find, uh, you know, if someone's abused, abuse, you know, gets hit by their wife their, their, or husband, it moves through the net because the children see it, they just associate to it, and it just yeah. becomes the norm. Uh, so you mentioned there about that intergenerational thing. That's an interesting comment that you kind of you want to stop that as well because you want to stop that going carrying on down the road. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we can only. I mean, it's everybody's story is their own, but at some point, you know, the transparency once it's out, things can heal. Yeah. It's like if you put some light on it, things start to heal. Yeah. But the more addiction, it's a disease of shame, and the shame feeds on silence. And so everybody, and somewhere like the Isle of Man, it's very difficult because there's no um, dilution of the information. It hits those barriers on the edges of the island and it just, there's nowhere for the information to go. People, it's just like this pressure cooker. Yeah. You, know, you know what it's like to live that. I mean, it's got, it's fantastic in so many ways because you have that close-knit community, um, close friends. I mean, me growing up, there was a complete lack of... Um, I mean, there was no real, nobody was breaking in the house. And if anybody did, everybody knew who did it. Um, but the other side of the coin is when things aren't going well, people, people just want to go inwards and, and just stay quiet, stay, stay silent, you know, make everything look good so nobody knows what's going on. Yeah. And, and it's dangerous. It, yeah. just, it just builds and builds and builds. You end up feeling like you're in a spotlight, I guess, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you... Sorry, Mark. Did um did you happen to tell your parents that 
full story or the story to the extent of what you did in the book or were you upfront with them in that sense or did you kind of give them forewarning this was coming before you, you sent that book or did they kind of know throughout your stages that stuff like what you, my, you know, I, I would say my I mean there's bits in the story where they wouldn't know everything but my mum was certainly um she certainly had a really good picture of the the full story my dad not so much i mean he didn't really nah he wouldn't in fact some of it i wanted him to know my story i wanted to connect with my dad in that way and say hey look you know this is my story this is who i am good bad and ugly and you know if anybody can benefit from it then that's a huge bonus you know somebody can read it and and i wanted him you know there's always a longing, I think, to connect with anybody, but particularly, I know for a, for a guy connecting with the father is, you know, when I was able to do that in recovery, it was tremendously healing. I'm sure. You mentioned uh, earlier then about getting a bit of drink, stalling on pot. Yeah. So was that, do you think, like, again, at the time, maybe also in hindsight, was the the... You'd reach not the limit with alcohol, but the alcohol did the numbing or whatever the right term is. Yeah. And you just, it becomes kind of the norm. So you just start piling the next thing on top. Is that how yeah. it worked or was it just something, just something new to do? Pretty much just it, you know, alcohol did its job. But then, you know, when things like heroin came along, I mean, all bets were off. It was like a, a completely new experience altogether. So talk us, like, talk us through that, if you don't mind, that experience. Yeah. And again, living on the, I mean, lived on the island all my life. I, I, I'm not naive enough to think drugs, drugs don't happen uh, and that kind of thing doesn't happen. But at the same time, you, you, know, you watch a movie and you think about heroin and it's pretty high end. Uh, and you just, I'm not saying you don't expect to see it on the island, man, but where, where does that first conversation come? Because you're just hanging out with people that, have access to that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's... You're not nervous was, about taking it? Say that again. You're not nervous about taking it? I, w I was anxious about taking it and also very curious. Right. And so, again, what? you know, there's absolutely no blame. I chose to do it. You know, I, I chose to, to participate. I could have always taken myself away from the situation, but I remember feeling anxious. I remember, do you remember Grange Hill? So there's a guy called Zamo on Grange Hill. And at the time, I remember he was sort of, or there was certainly around about that period of time where he was into heroin. So they were obviously, it was being like this educational thing. Yeah, they would say, say no to drugs. They had a song. Say no to drugs. And, yeah. you know, there would be posters up with two syringes, like crossed this type of stuff. And yeah. so there was stuff going on. And to be honest, I couldn't even believe we, it was on the Isle of Man at the time. This would have been, I mean, I'd have been 15. So what? 76, 96, 91. Yeah, right. Um, and yeah, very, but the thing was when I took it and I don't want to, I don't want to glorify it in any way, but when I took it, I remember just feeling, you know, very warm and, and very relaxed. And I remember just thinking, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Right. This is great. Like I've been lied to. And then you think, well, I'm only smoking it, so there's no way I'll get addicted. Interesting. I was just going to ask the question about, and again, it's not about glorifying. So I think to, to, to always give full context to the story and yeah. the, 
that the good and the, the, the messages that people, the good messages people can learn is to, to understand the other side of it. So I to be honest, I didn't know you could smoke it. It's probably my, my honest answer. So, right. Yeah. So it was so expensive I, back then. Say that again. Was it expensive? And, it, and then how were you funding this? Very expensive. Um, how would I, I probably had a bit of money and it wasn't particularly regular. Right. Um, so I, I would have had bits of money, who knows, probably Christmas presents. And I always had little jobs. I, you know, I worked at the estate agents and I worked at Ramsey Bakery and um, had a post round and all sorts of stuff just to, yeah. to, to get a bit of money. But um, it was very expensive. And, and again, it wasn't, I wasn't doing it every day, but you know, it was every other weekend, just have a little go on it. And then it gradually, and then I remember actually having had an issue with my throat. I had tonsillitis and I had like an abscess on my throat and I had to have surgery on it and stuff. But I remember at one point being given painkillers, which had a similar effect to the heroin. And I remember just asking for more and more and more. And I found a way, you know. Right. I found a way. So as you, as you come out of school, and like, did you go into secondary school and, and where did the education go? So I went into, finished Ramsey Grammar, um, did my A-levels, did my GCSEs, did my A-levels. They were absolutely appalling results, but I managed to scrape through. Um, and then went to university at Derby. So, so just those before you leave the island, then did you sort of drink and do, doing doing drugs? Do you think like were you wandering around thinking people are talking about me doing this, or were you just not just that wasn't even on the radar? It was just like I'm out with my mates, I'm doing what what I want to do. I couldn't give a fuck what other people think or see. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first thought before I did anything was always fuck it. Right. <laughs> that was all. But I think there was, you know, I was hanging around with a particular crowd and, you know, I think the circumstances fit the way I felt inside is the way I would describe it. So it was like the wheels were coming off years before and now here I am. I remember the first time I took ecstasy. It was on the prom in Douglas, actually, and I was with a group of people, and I was terrified about doing that because people were dying, and I was just like, well, fuck it. And I, I really wanted to fit in with the group. Um, but at the same time, you're gradually starting to associate with different people, and, and then you're starting to get paranoid, and then you're really thinking, Craigie, how did I, how, is, how are things getting so bad? So I was aware that... I've gone from a certain set, set of circumstances at a younger age to like, now things are really not looking that good. Did you always feel like you were in control? I did at that stage. Um, but I, I certainly remember the moments where the addiction got a foothold. And, and I realized, looking back now, I realized totally had no control. Whatsoever. What, what age would you put on that, the foothold? You know, the heroin and the opiates. I'm going to say, well, even with ecstasy, a similar sort of thing. It wasn't a physical addiction with ecstasy. The heroin, though, was very much a psychological addiction that I was just always thinking about it. 
even if I wasn't doing it, I was thinking, when is the next time I can get it? So I've, you know, self-will is out the window and, and the ability to choose has gone. It was the same with the alcohol. I remember probably actually at 17 with the alcohol, I remember thinking, I remember wanting a drink and sweating before I drank and thinking, you know, I need this. And then getting up in the morning and thinking, okay, this is just a hair of the dog. This is what people do to get through the hangover. It's okay. Yeah. And then you see a lot of people drinking at 11 in the morning, you're like, well, fuck it, you know, <laughs> I might as well go and join them. And it, this is socially acceptable to be doing it over, over here. So just get stuck in. Yeah, yeah. So, so you go to Derby. Uh, was, there a, was there a thought process of at that stage? And I don't know, because island life can get a bit close uh, and tight that, oh, it's time, I'm moving on now. Uh, and I can not change my ways, but do something different. I, I desperately wanted to get off the island. That's for sure. Why? Um, before that, probably about 17, 18 years old, I had gone to the doctor. And before I, in the period from when I left school to going, I took a year out. And in that year, I just, the wheels came off with the, the drinking and the drug use. Like it, it got really bad. And I knew I was having panic attacks every day. Um, I started going to the doctor trying to find a solution. I think you didn't talk to the doctor about the stuff you were doing. I, I just couldn't tell him. Yeah. I, I didn't have the guts to tell him the truth. So I would give him a bit of the story about how, you know, I was having trouble sleeping, um, you know, I'm smoking a bit of pot, maybe. I might confess to that, but really not giving him the full story. And so I knew that, I mean, the panic attacks were all day, every day for long periods of time, and it was terrifying. I'd drive up to the emergency wing with my heart, like, battering out of my chest. And, um, you know, they'd be just like, there's nothing organically wrong with you, you know? Yeah. And so it's... I'd go to the doctor and this went on and on and on. And, and really me going to Derby was my way of just getting off the, thinking that the Isle of Man's the problem and I'm going to get off the Isle of Man and, and, you know, start again. Nobody will know me there. And, you know, you take yourself with you every time. So, yeah. So Christian Barley, who we interviewed, uh, similar where he, yeah, he went to California to race his bike and, kind of thought I, I'm away from the Alabama. my problems are over there and where the rally is there you know within him within himself so it sounds like a similar experience so I presume did it take long to f I, and again I, I, I use the word falling with the wrong crowd I don't mean that disrespectfully to anyone but the, the bad habits continue quite quickly in Derby the minute I got off the train <laughs> <laughs> I was in a bar you know and you, you, you find your companions you know what I mean like I, I found the drinking guys and I literally the first three months I didn't go to university I just drank every single day wow hard and then I dropped out oh okay okay I dropped out but I negotiated to get on a degree course because I was going on an HND and I went back and I thought I'd enrolled on the wrong course and stuff so I went and spoke to the the head of the uh, the particular course I wanted to get onto at Derby and I said is there any chance I can start again next year and he said yes so I, I dropped out after three months, 
came back to the island and to be honest when i came back i was in such bad state that was the first time that i'd really told the doctor the truth that i went in and said look this has been going on it's been going on a while he put me on some antidepressants and some strong ones that i needed at that time and that gradually started i remember waking up maybe about a week after i started this medication and i just i felt better than i'd felt in as long as i could remember so they definitely helped and were you still drinking during that i was still drinking yeah but i knew i didn't have to drink to the extent that i was drinking um prior to this medication it gave me some relief that you know i don't have to be drinking every single night and getting hammered every single weekend. Yeah, yeah. And were you living back with your mother? Back at your mother? I was living back with mum, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was the, ne- the next stage? Did you go back at that next year or not? So yeah, I was back on the Isle of Man and then went back and started on a degree course the following year. And I chose to go and live. The, the halls of residence, the previous three months, I'd set the kitchen on fire at the halls of residence, so they wouldn't let me back. So I found a pub on the corner in between all the halls of residence and there was a room for rent upstairs. So I was now living in a bar. So (laughs) I managed to to get it all just, get all the tools at my disposal. And did you get through uni? I did, yes. The first, you know, I was definitely feeling well enough to attend, even though, I mean, I was, I wasn't showing up the way yeah you know i mean it's university but i remember getting my third year i i i got a girlfriend and that motivation really inspired me to want to do well and in actual fact in in my final year i did really well so i sort of managed to get my shit together and and pull it all together and and were you still on the medication during that time those years that's a good question i was on and off it so I was, I was taking it when I felt I needed to take it. I wasn't taking it as they recommend, but I was, I was taking it when I was sort of feeling like I needed it. And I still had the anxiety. I mean, when I look back from today to that time, I was like, I was a mess. You know, I was an absolute mess. But I was better than I'd been before. Yeah. So yeah, I was still taking it on and off, just not consistently. And your girlfriend at that stage, was she aware of the extent? No, I don't, no, you know, she wouldn't have been, I mean, we would both drink and it's it's difficult because at university, it's such a party like lifestyle. There's something going on every night of the week. You know, you can go out and drink and disguise it. So really, I mean, I hid it very well is what I would say. I I didn't want to let anybody in to see the real me because I was like, if people know who I really am, like I'm going to have no friends left. You know, if they know how, um, what a mess I am and how I'm on antidepressants and, you know, I, I need to carry Valium around. That was the other thing. I had to carry Valium in my pocket from the first panic attack. I couldn't leave the house without Valium, is what I would say. So, you know, I was agoraphobic at one point where you literally can't leave the house. Right. But I, I had this Valium and although I wouldn't take it, it just gave me the psychological advantage that, I could go about and I would know if I had a panic attack, I could take this Valium and I'd be okay. I hoped I'd be okay. Yeah, right. right. So yeah, this was, there was like, it was just, there was a, a face I'd present to the world and then the reality of what was going on 
behind closed doors, which was a whole different show. Obviously, I guess I'd assume 20 years on that looking back, that's not necessarily something you were particularly consciously aware of at the time. No. It, again, it's a sort of learned behavior. You know, I, and, it, and it goes back to early days where you live, you know, living in, I guess, Ramsey. Again, it's about shame and it's about keep everything a secret. Don't let anybody in. Um, it's dangerous to expose who you really are. So that's, that's what I learned, you know, it was a learned behavior. So it was, a, it was almost like a survival technique. What did you study at uni? I Apart did. The bar. Apart from what? The bar. <laughs> the bar. That was top, top study. <laughs> uh, so my, my course was product design, innovation, and marketing. Okay. Right. And was that something you were passionate about? Do you think, like, again, looking back, was that just somewhere to go and something to do? No, I was actually, the, in my A-levels, the one thing that I did well was I gravitated towards design. And so that was my choice to go to university and, and do, do something in design. Yeah, I enjoyed it. So I was looking, uh, going through the book, and you mentioned in, in the book about your CV and applying for jobs, and obviously kind of tongue-in-cheek about working for as creative designers, and then you put, like, reason for leaving and uh, obviously it's not on your CV, but it, it says like uh, cocaine addiction. So, so as you then go into working life, that, that just continues that, that abuse, should we call it? Whatever that's yeah, well, I, I, when I left um, university, I set up a design consultancy with one of the guys that was on my course. And, and this guy would like, he was top of the course, super high flyer, um, brilliant designer like phenomenal designer. So he and I were close friends and we set up this design consultancy in Derby. And I just remember doing 80, 90 hours a week and thinking, you know, cocaine should really go hand in hand with this lifestyle. So it, again, it was like this, my perception of what the lifestyle should be like. Let's just throw some cocaine in and before you know it, crack cocaine's in the mix and, but I was always thinking about heroin. I was right. always thinking, how do I get my hands on some heroin? All right, okay. Yeah. So, uh, not that we want to educate people particularly, but what's the difference between cocaine and crack cocaine? Yeah, crack is, is you cook cocaine to make crack, so it's almost like purified and crystal so you can smoke it. So it's just a, a very heavy hit of cocaine. Did you ever, ever get onto injecting? Say that again. Did you ever get onto injecting? I, I, injected ex I injected ecstasy and heroin, but I didn't make a habit out of it. Right. So I did try it. Right. That's it. Random. Yeah, right. Nuts. I look back now and like, what the f what? Yeah. Well, how was, uh, how was working 90 hours a week and Brutal. Just driving you into the ground, I assume, eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. We had, um, we were working with the head designer at Pininfarina, the people who style the Ferraris. So we had big contracts with like Bombardier, AdTrans, big companies with a real great opportunity to do some fantastic stuff. And, you know, we just, we didn't know how to run a business. 
you know, I was pulling the house down morning, noon and night, you know, with my behavior. So I'm trying to juggle the job on one hand and then trying to manage life. And my life was completely unmanageable. And did your business partner, was was he one, aware of what, what was going on in your own life? And two, was he, and maybe you don't want to say, was he in the, the party mode as well? No, he, he had his shit together. He, yeah, he had his shit together. So he was, but again, you know, the way people drink in the UK is very different to even in America here. So even if you're having four or five pints a night in the, in the UK, I mean, that might be just considered, you know, an average night. Over here, you know, it would be, I remember drinking like that over here when I first arrived and people were just staring at me across the bar like, what the fuck is this guy you know, knocking, knocking pints back and thinking nothing of it? Um, when did that, uh, assuming at, at some point that, that business or your relationship with that business, did that come to a break point somewhere? Yes. And, and it was really, again, on me. You know, I, I mean, I just, I was a wreck. Um, again, crippling anxiety not taking care of myself, drinking, all the same behaviors. And then we just, we had, to, we had no other choice, just had to part ways. Like he didn't want to know, you know, which is absolutely fair play. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, you've mentioned a number of times about, I suppose, that self-responsibility. Was that, was there ever through that again? And that, I, you've obviously a few, a few years older now, was there awareness that this, I need to stop this or you know, any of that kind of going through them, it's easier in hindsight, I appreciate, but. Yeah, I think, um, I think there was always, I knew I didn't want to feel the way I felt. No. And I, but I just did not know how yeah. to, how to like straighten out. Yeah. Do you think, you know, uh, one, one of the guys we've spoken to, he, he talks about the systems that are in place now to, to help people through the processes, whether it's, you know, counselling, etc. Do you think, again, looking back, that, again, this isn't about saying that the processes or things aren't in place now, but that there should be more ability to... Because I'd like to think conversation like this would give people an opportunity if they're in a, not in a great place to like, oh, that's relatable. Maybe maybe I could either reach out to you yeah. or reach out to, to the doctor to go, I, I need... Do you think that infrastructure's... Or those opportunities are there or there needs to be more conversations? A hundred percent more conversations. You know, I would love, my hope would be that if anybody like, either read my book or listened, just the, to have the courage to ask for help. But also, I think, you know, I know my experience with the Isle of Man and trying to get help. It, it wasn't easy for me to get the help that I needed in any way, shape or form. And, and I just got so despondent with it when I really did try to genuinely get help for the addictions. It was just so difficult and there was so much bureaucracy in place and there was such a heavy burden on me to do a lot of the work that I just said, ah, fuck man, I need somebody to just wrap me up in cotton wool and, and cart me off here and just, you know, put me in a room. Yeah. But yeah, so 100%, I, I would love it if people were able to feel like to take the shame out of mental illness and to take the shame out of the addiction and to understand that addiction is a disease. 
you know, it's, it's, it's scientifically proven to be a disease. And people go, oh, no, it's not. It's just, it's a moral failing. It's not a moral failing at all, you know, and it's categorized as a, as a disease. Alcoholism categorized as disease. Addiction, 1987, categorized as disease. So the more conversations we have, I would hope to God if there was anybody listening in their early stages and they're like, things aren't going well, and they, they start finding themselves compelled to use alcohol or drugs as medication, it's a really good indication to start finding people they trust and to start asking for help, finding a doctor. If you don't get along well with the first doctor, reach out and try and find another one. You know, but the honesty is critical. People can only help you with the information you give them. So again, you know, it's... Yeah, I, I think I might say to one of the other guests we were talking about that as uh, assuming that I'm, I'm less of an addictive personality in regard to that, that as a bystander and 10 years ago, if you'd have asked me, I'd have just been like, well, just stop doing it. You just, because yeah. my brain's wired that way to go, well, just stop. You know, if you want to stop eat, eating, doing, doing whatever it is you don't want to do, just stop. Uh, so I'll never understand from an addiction mind how that's just not possible. You just can't yeah, go. No, and, that, and, and that's a really good piece of feedback because I think if, you know, if you aren't say genetically predisposed and you haven't experienced the trauma or um, the social factors or the environmental factors that can trigger the addiction, because I made the choice to drink. If we take drinking, for example, I made the choice to drink. Um, but once the addiction sets in, because it's in the brain, we, you know, we have an entire drugstore inside. It was the dopamine, the norepinephrine, the serotonin, the cortisol. We, we've got an entire drugstore inside of us. And what happens is when we're using drugs and synthetic, whatever it might be, alcohol, it starts to rewire the brain. So at a point, the addiction takes a foothold and you lose the freedom of choice. So it's not like people might think, well, you just don't have the willpower or you're weak. And, and that is unfortunately what drives home the illness. And that's what peeps, keeps people stuffed and repressed and um, not feeling safe to ask for help because, and particularly as guys, we don't want to ask, we don't want to appear like what would deem society says is weak asking for help. You know, I mean, three words that kill more, than, more men than anything is be a man. We have a, an entire business model that sets men up to fail. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. No, no, very interesting. So to skip on, I know where in the book you talk about uh, being, moving to London. And, and I use the word living in London. I don't know how, how, if that's quite the right phrase, if you weren't living it. I believe you were homeless down there at a period of time. So how did you end up down there? I was, well, I, I wasn't homeless, but I was hanging out with homeless people. Right. So I was trying to get um, work down there at the time. And, and I was just, as soon as I would go down there, I would literally, I would be in a suit and I would be under the bridges in London, just hanging out with the homeless people, smoking crack and heroin. I mean, I'd gone for, I remember walking out of an interview at a huge architectural practice, like one of the biggest in the world. I'd just gone for this interview. I walk out, I find this guy, and before I know it, I'm like sat under, sat under a bridge, just 
hammering the drugs with this. I mean, it's crazy. I look back now, I'm like, yeah, I know. I know you talk about and being anxious and things like that. Did, did that never come across your mind or bother you that you would just come out and like talk to a complete random stranger about going somewhere and doing drugs? Right? You know, at any point did that ever come in your brain of any danger element or anything to that side, or was it just? I I, I loved the excitement. Everywhere I went, I went to Sheffield to work. This was after I finished this, you know, this company when I finished my degree. Straight away, I was down. I, I know where to go to find the homeless people. And I just offer them, you know, get twice as much. You keep half, give me the other half. Because people, everywhere I would go, people would think I was a policeman trying to set them up. So I knew that the homeless people wouldn't give a shit. So if I could find a few homeless people, get them in the car, I ended up in Sheffield and like within a couple of days, I was in this burnt house, burnt out old building. I remember having to climb through the side of the building. There was some cardboard over the window and me and these two homeless guys went inside. They're shooting up all sorts of crap. One guy had a big gaping hole in his groin and he's just jacking up hair like speedballs, heroin and crack cocaine. I'm sitting there in my suit, just <laughs> smoking drugs with these guys. I mean, I just... Everywhere I went, I, I was able to find the, the right, but just desperate to get drugs. Everywhere I went, just desperate to get drugs. All right. So in, in, so in that London time, those interview, when you go into those interviews, are you doing stuff before you go to interviews to help you relax the anxiety? Definitely. Yeah. Anything to take the anxiety off. Valium, um, probably antidepressants. Just like a vicious circle, isn't it? Brutal. Mm. it's brutal so <clears throat> I know you ended up halfway around the world how did that come about um, I was I was back on the Isle of Man actually that's when my heroin addiction really took off when I, when I ended up back on the Isle of Man after I finished at Derby and had the business the business failed back on the Isle of Man and um, yeah the heroin addiction then just really took off and, and that was when I was trying to get help. And I, I remember thinking again, like if I, my sister was living in New Zealand at the time, and I remember thinking, if I can just get to the other side of the world, I will be far enough away. You know, like again, they call it a geographic, trying to change location to solve the problem. And, and like, like I said before, you take yourself with you. Mm-hmm. So you went, you- well, first of all, then being back on the Isle of Man, was that again back into a fishbowl? Definitely. And it was worse this time because the, my drug use was so heavy. Mm. I mean, I was full on into the heroin at this time. Mm. So it, it, that alone, the paranoia and, um, yeah, re, real fishbowl. Did you ever do any, did you ever do dealing or was it always just about use? Getting, getting it to, to get your own fix? Just me getting it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't like the idea. You know, I was, oh, the one thing I had, I was always paranoid about getting caught. You know, I was like, God, I don't want to end up in Victoria Road or whatever it is. That would be the worst of the worst. And so there was still so much denial with me. Right. And I, I think in many ways, I, I still thought, oh, I can beat this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got the willpower to beat it. And, and I tried to quit 
every other day for years. Right. You know, I would say every time I took it, I would be like, this is the last time. Like, this is the last day. And, and just go again the next time. Right back on the next morning. And just after, so, so, so let's call them, if you want to call them, not relapses, but did you, would, would you take it and then go, oh, balls? Or how, what, what was the thought process there? I would, you know, I would love the excitement. And this is, it. it's quite interesting to understand that I look back and I go, I was sometimes taking the drugs or the drink was anticlimactic. Okay. So I would be like the inner drugstore. I would be amped up on the adrenaline and the excitement of scoring the drugs. I remember one time turning up to a guy's place on the prom in Douglas and the drug squad were going around the front and I was due to go and score some drugs off him. And, and I thought, I'll still try and just drive around the back to see if I can get him as he's leaving the back. I mean, anybody else would have just gone, Let, let's get out of here. I just thought I'm going to get a little bit closer and just drive around the back, see if he's coming out. Maybe I can still score on the way out. Like, but at the same time, dreading the idea of ending up in prison and thinking that would be the worst of the worst. So, yeah, sometimes when I would get the drugs, I would take them and it'd be like, what have you done? All right. Like, just, what? Like, totally nothing. Yeah. Same with alcohol. There was times when I would be so excited. You know, I would be all, I would know I was going to get a drink and I would be all amped up and excited about getting the drink and looking forward to it and stuff. And then I would take the drink and be like, just feel flat. Right. Like, oh, here we are again. Is that common feeling with, with people with addiction? Um, I think probably the excitement side of it is, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So you end up in New Zealand. Did you go yeah. initially stay with your sister? I originally, when I arrived there, I stayed with her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. yeah. And again, I, I use the word, what was the plan? I, aside from thinking you were getting away from the problems, what was the plan to try and start a life out there? Totally. It was, it was, again, make sure, make everything look good. You know, if I could only get a job, um, get a house, get married, just normal. Yeah, Start right. playing a sport again. What age were you at this stage? I was 30. Right. Um, New Zealand allowed people to get a two-year work visa before they were 30. So maybe I was 29, 29 going on 30 at that time. Yeah, right. right. And how did life settle there? Did you, you know? Just, just round three. <laughs> Just brutal. I mean, yeah, God, you know, I mean, I, I, I got there drinking heavily, just, you know, wanting to, I took heroin with me to just get to New Zealand because I was terrified of the flight. Um, Do so I remember, I, I was, get, sorry. I was going to say, so transport, you'd be transporting that as well through borders. Yes, like a lunatic. Right. I had all sorts of shit. I had so many drugs and, and medication and, I mean, lunacy. And I got there and just started drinking very heavily. Um, but within no time, I was like, i got to get heroin. And I remember thinking, find the local newspaper and find out where the trouble is 
Because wherever the trouble is, like find a rough estate and then go to the estate and find like some dodgy looking character and just see what you can get. You know? It's amazing the, uh, I mean, that's, I use the word clever, but you know, it's like, if somebody asked me the question, you just go, well, where do you even start? But yeah, to go through that thought process and you know, it's very, uh, it's obviously logical, but it's like you're saying the homeless people, it's like, well, go and see them. Cause that's where the, uh, yeah. So yeah. did you go and stay with your sister when you first went? Yeah, Wednesday with my sister. And how was she? I'd... She she's fantastic. She's been there. Crikey, I mean, must be twenty plus years now. She absolutely loves it out there. Has a great life. Phenomenal life. And was she aware of your behaviour? Not to the extent, but she. I think towards the end, she was aware. Okay, there's a problem. And she obviously encouraged me to come over as well. Yeah, right. I actually remember before I went over, I remember confessing to my dad that I was um, a heroin addict. And it was like I had to tell him because I remember he turned up at the house one day and there is no way I would have wanted him to know. But I couldn't believe his reaction was so supportive. And it was him who encouraged me as well because he'd gone to Australia when he was like 18, 19 because he had to get off the island. And he said to me, look, get away from here, you know, go to New Zealand because that worked for him. Yeah. But he wasn't dealing with, you know, the addiction issue in the way I was. So, you know, he was passing on a solution that he, that worked for him. So yeah, he really encouraged me. And that's another thing, you know, parents, parents want to help. You know, if you're a kid going through it, people really do give a shit. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they feel a burden of it. And that's what I mentioned earlier about, the book and reading the book because I, I could only imagine that that there's, there's there's guilt when they when they read it and read what you went through and they I'm sure they look back and think we could have done more and you're very honest about your own your own choices and your own you know I, I put myself in all these situations but uh, yeah. it's, and as much as you try not to and obviously don't put any blame on them I'm sure they carry that guilt around it, it's just human instinct. Well, the, I mean, my mum fortunately got into uh, a 12-step program for the friends and families of alcoholics. Right. And one of the things that they teach you in there, there's something called the three C's, which is you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. Mm. So it's tremendous relief for the parents or partner or family member of an alcoholic to know that they had absolutely nothing to do with the addiction. Yeah. You know, regardless of what went on, you know, yes, there was issues, but it wasn't that they, like I couldn't control, you know, how they feel about it. But at the same time, you know, they couldn't control, you know, a genetic predisposition or what I was choosing to do or how it carried on or, or my choices, you know? So. The stuff I've listened to, they talked about where certain partners that they're, they're often, one of the most effective ways to help addicts is for the partner to go to uh, the 12 step because they lose that dependent, I believe, on the partner and suddenly it's almost like a wake up call to them. But uh, that's, uh, they, they need to sort their own shift out basically. Totally. Yeah. The only way you can help anybody is by being an example. Right. Yeah. So, so how did life pan out in New Zealand in the coming years? Um, I mean, I got a job and 
tried to function to the best of my ability. Um, I had a friend from Ramsey come over and stay, and he got a job out there. So he and I were sharing this apartment together. Um, and yeah, that's that's sort of I'm trying to think of the time frames now. But yeah, life, I mean, it, it was a train wreck, to be honest with you. It was the same thing all over again, just lots of drinking, um, same old stuff. But really, that was one of those sliding door moments for me when I met this particular woman over there. Yeah, so talk us and, a bit through that. Um, so my friend had come over and, you know, New Zealand and Australia mad on rugby. I mean, huge, huge rugby fans. And they have something called the Bledisloe Cup, which is Australia versus New Zealand each year. So they do a match in, in New Zealand and a match in Australia. And um, my friend really wanted to see the match live at Eden Park, but all the tickets were sold out. So we drove to a bar in town to try and watch it at one of the bars in in the viaduct or wherever it was and one of the barmen said oh i'll i can get you tickets i'll drive you closer to the ground so anyway we go we go to eden park no tickets couldn't get a ticket into into the ground whatsoever we're running around we're trying to talk with the touts and stuff um i go inside the kiosk at the front and i say to this guy is there any tickets and he's like now nah, we're done um, I'm walking away and the guy comes out of the kiosk and says, we've got two tickets left. They're the only two tickets left to this game. So me and my mate got the tickets, ran around the stadium, got into the stadium. The guys are doing the hacker and stuff. They have this big game. I'm leaving the match and I see this woman walking down the side of the road with a kid and the kid's spinning a rugby ball. And... Um, he catches my eye and throws it over and stuff and we strike up this conversation. And I knew she would, she sounded American, you know, from her accent. So we're chatting on and we're chatting on. And, um, anyway, we, it's a long story. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the bits of it now, but the long and short of it was we, we spent the, like hung out for that evening. Um, I went back the next day and we spent, maybe a few days together um, over that period of time. So that was, that was me really meeting this woman. Right. And finding out a bit about her. And um, yeah, that was the original meeting. And how did that pat, you know, that? So, so the key about bit sliding, was, sliding door moment. That, that was a real sliding door moment. And, and the part of it is that it turned out she had been married to a really well-known American athlete and she was just going through a divorce. So she'd come over to New Zealand to, to get away from it all. And, you know, when I met her, I was leaving a rugby match. So when she asked me, what do you do for a living? I told her I'm a professional rugby player. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's great. That's great. So I'd managed to pull off this like sports specific bullshit, you know, and the problem was once you tell one lie, you have to fabricate an entire life to back up the lie. 
So then I was making up a house that didn't belong to me. I was making up a car parked in the drive of the house that didn't belong to me. I was fucking fabricating jobs and just one lie after a little. So even though it was like, I mean, to me, I felt like, oh my God, like this is, this woman's incredible. Like what an incredible opportunity. But on the same time, I'm now buried so deep in this bullshit right. that, you know, if she finds out, it's over. Um, so I was, I was just hiding behind this lie the whole time. The drinking and the drug use were, you know, matching the extent of the lie. It was and so just that um, that the lying is was that more if you equated to the drugs is that feeling of um, a high when you were doing that that excitement to see if you get caught or was that more on the anxiety side? Kind of it was, was it? it was probably um, wanting to be something so that I would be accepted. The truth was, you know, there was yeah just. By nature, you know, an addict is, is, is the social chameleon. I had a, I could be everything to everybody so that they would accept me. And if it required me lying to portray a certain, it was almost like exciting to pretend to be this. It was something said in the spur of the moment, not thinking how deep it would get me into something. And, and next minute you're like, oh shit, I'm, I'm so deep in this lie that like, I don't even know how to get out of it now. So, so how did that did that continue? Obviously, I assume you started. You know, yeah, so we st we started this like long distance affair. She would fly over to New Zealand, and um, she invited me to America, and so that was really my first first blush with America. Right, was to arrive. Actually, not far from where I am now. Um, yeah, it's unreal. To live with it. Uh, it was just on holiday to begin with. Yeah. And then as it progressed, you know, we were a, a way down the line now and it wasn't realistic. It was either she was going to come over there to New Zealand or I was going to come to America. And I was like, uh, you know, I'd seen the place and I, and it, you know, it's incredible. And um, what, like, like that, that period of time for that, that relationship developing, what, what are we talking, like six months, two years, what's the timeline? Um, I probably met her, I'm, I'm gonna, it's probably a year. Yeah. Probably a year, yeah. uh, nine months to a year, and then sort of gradually moving, moving over towards then, America. Thinking about that, you know, from it, well, obviously you don't know what go, going through her mind, but you say about being a rugby player, how, how do you keep validating that lie? Assuming you're not playing rugby. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm thinking back. Gosh, it's been so long since I've talked about all this. It, I'm reflecting back now. I, I think I was just telling more lies yeah. and just doing anything to protect the lie. Yeah. I mean, the thing was, she came over and um, obviously I wasn't living in the house that I'd pretended to live in. <laughs> and I didn't have the things I pretended to have. And... You know, yeah, it was Do you, just one lie to protect a lie, to protect a lie. I feel uncomfortable even talking about it now. You know, it's one of those things where I look yeah. back. Um, not that it's bad to talk about. It's important to talk about this stuff. But 
just reflecting on it from where I am today yeah. is uncomfortable. You know, it was just like one of those things done spur of the moment, joking, and then you get buried in this and the, the, the anxiety that it causes and the things that happened. I mean, I remember moving over and I woke up hungover one morning and she said, are you ready to go? And I said, ready to go where? And she said, you agreed to play. And it turned out the night before, she was friends with the captain of the local rugby team. And I had agreed to be the guest star rugby player to yeah. play that next morning. I'm like, fuck, hell, man, come on. So anyway, that in itself was a whole other story. You know, it just this kids would come over with rugby balls for me to sign and stuff. And actually, like, I mean, it was just nuts. Absolutely yeah, right. nuts. So, so once you, once you made that decision to move, I, I assume, I would guess it's probably an easier uh, in your mind if you then in this kind of living in this lie that they're coming to use. It's easier to you go there because you kind of kind of got a clean slate in your head, I guess, because you've not, you know, and it's probably nicer weather and let alone everything else. Yeah, I mean the was, place. Sorry, go. On. I was going to say as well, uh, and maybe you don't want to harbour on the point, but you mentioned earlier that she had a child. There's no yeah. thought process about that side of things that you're, you know, gonna, what you're doing and carrying out isn't, isn't fitting in with that. A, a mother trying to bring up a child. Well, the, the irony is, I mean, it was a reflection of my situation. You know, I, I could see this kid, you've got a couple going through a divorce and um, I could see the pain that this kid was in. I could see, he wasn't having a good relationship with his dad, you know, and, and I would meet his dad and the kid would be there and there'd be lots of tension. And, you know, he sort of saw me as a friend. And I think I probably saw a lot of me in him. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, again, I was, I wanted to be sort of the role model that I would have wanted to this kid. And obviously, just not possible. You know, I was trying, but it was so difficult. So and there wasn't, a, a, again, thinking about that, I appreciate it's not a switch, you just stop. But that, seeing that, that wasn't enough to go, I need some help here, I need to sort my shit out. I think it was always in the back of my mind. I mean, but the, you know, the border, the Tijuana, the Mexican border is literally down the road here. It's, I can be at the border in 25 minutes. And I was literally, when I arrived here, I was living not far from where I am now. So I would drive down to Tijuana, cross over the border, go and score, you know, heroin, Oxycontin, meth, whatever it is. And then I would drive back home. I would tell her I was going to the gym, drive down, score all the drugs. Again, it was the excitement. I was so lit up and high driving down there. And, and the whole... Um, yeah, just the excitement of it. So that first that first trip to Mexico, was that something you did alone? Yes. Or we always went alone. Right. So so then is that again, I suppose you talk about the homeless people in, in, in London, is that you just know you, you know you know the places to go because that's just in inbuilt instinct and knowledge to go to the place. It's worse there though, because they really thought I would be walking down the street in Tijuana, they'd be shouting five oh, five oh, they'd think I was police, you see. Right. I'd be dressed like, what's this guy? I'd be down the dirtiest back street scoring drugs. And at the time, people, 
people here would say, don't go down there because bodies are getting found in oil drums. Like people go down there and don't come back. It was really rough at the time. And I would go down just like carefree, just desperate to get these drugs. And I would be putting myself in, I would go into the farm season, try and score drugs and they would get on their walkie talkies. People would follow you and stuff. It was just crazy. Look back now, it's lunacy. Lunacy. And uh, coming back across the border again, seems pretty fucking high risk to me. High risk with bags of tramadol stuffed down my, you could see like I would have like packets like hundreds of these tablets just bulging out the pack of my pants and stuff like right. just walking walking across this border and, and part of like you talk about i suppose not blending in in regard to you don't look like a heroin addict or a, a drug you wandering down the street was part of the thought process when you're crossing the border well i just look like a you know just not what i'm less a tourist, suspicious a tourist yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah. with a funny accent it was a funny accent, exactly. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the Manx accent. Well, we've managed to figure out a way. To do, uh, right, so then you just bring it back and use it all for yourself. Just bring it back and use it, and then say I was, you know, I would have enough there and get through it. Um, but then I would, I, would, I would probably only get enough of the heavy stuff to do me a day or two. Right. Because I would think, right, I'm going to come, I'm going to get off it at that point. And, and at that point, I would just be back down the border getting more. Well, you're working. No. So no. she was supporting you there. She was, yeah. Yeah, she was, she, she was very comfortable and with a, a, a beautiful home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sitting by the pool. Right. So that, that, that obviously bleeds into the, or we go back to the start where you read out the first chapter, which... I guess is at this juncture in your life where you uh, end up, is OD the right term to use in that situation? Say that again, sorry. Is that you got to that situation to OD, like overdose, I assume, and that's why you ended up. What, what, that, that part, that chapter you read at the start, was that the prelude to that? Was that you doing something to end up in that site unit? What was the. Yeah, I had actually, yeah, it's a, it's a good segue into, you know, the recovery side of it, which was I was pulling the house down and she, she was well aware he's behaving like an addict. She kicked me out. Yeah. Um, I was in the Holiday Inn in Solana Beach here where I had my last drink. And um, I remember my mum had always said to me, if you ever need to get help, like if you're ever willing to go to treatment, I'll help you. And at that point, part of me was still like, right, I'm, I've got nowhere to go, so I'll go to treatment. And there was, a, you know, this deep part of me that really wanted to get well. Can, can I just interject there before you ask? Do you think most addicts have that underlying somewhere deep down they want to get help? I really I appreciate do. you can't speak for other people, but you think that's... No, I, I, I mean, the human spirit is so strong. I really genuinely believe that Again, you know, when we understand it as a disease and, you know, it's not a moral failing, it, it is that somebody is just now rewired a different way and they have lost the ability to choose. And deep down, ultimately, there's a longing to, to be free. Every human being, like, that's, that's why we do sport. That's why we do what we do. It's, it's to achieve freedom. So to be at the mercy of drugs and alcohol, I... 
I mean, it's, it's a horrible, it's the hardest job in the world to be an addict. Mm-hmm. You know, the lengths that you have to go to to manipulate, lie, cheat, steal, beg, borrow, hustle, it, it, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely exhausting. Sorry, you were saying the whole day in and trying to reach out to get some help. Yeah, so long story short, my mum had got me into uh, a treatment center up in LA. And um, I got into this treatment center. And um, that was really my, my big moment of truth was being in this treatment center. And that, that really, the, the moment that happened there was really... I mean, I still to this day, my mom saved my fucking life that day. You know, there's no two ways about it. By just by the very nature of being able to help me get into, you know, a treatment center and being available. Um, was that the real first time, the real first time where you went to get some help outside of speaking to the doctor? But was that a real? That, yes. Yeah. I had tried on the Isle of Man when I was 26, but it was just too hard. They were like, well, you've got to go and interview. You've got to go to the UK and interview, you know, speak to a few treatment centers, then come back, fill out the paperwork. And then and I was just like, fuck, somebody needs to put me, somebody just, somebody literally needs to put me on a boat and hold my hand and put me in this place because I can't do it. Someone else we spoke to said that they had to beg, that, that's saying they had to beg to, to go. They were like, I need to go. I have a problem. And they, they eventually got, got, uh, got to go but it was like banging your head against the wall it was incredibly difficult mm. and, and I would love for the Isle of Man to have a system in place that really I don't know what it's like there now because I've been away for a while but I would love it if you know people were sincerely in a place where they wanted to get help that that, that process was made easy yeah. um, so how long were you in uh, LA and in, in there getting help? So I was, it was supposed to be a 30 day um, stay in rehab. And um, I had after about four days, four or five days, I started, uh, it's a tough one to explain this one as well. But it, it sounds absolutely crazy. You know, the, and the experience for me was absolutely crazy, but it was just a huge moment of truth. Um, and I, you know, ended up with, they call this technically a psychotic break, mm. um, where I was having paranoid delusions. Um, I thought I was on the Truman Show. Uh, I was having religious delusions. Um, this would be a come down, I assume. It was oh, obviously I was coming. I was coming off drugs at the time, but it wasn't a heavy. It wasn't a heavy detox at all. Um, and I've I've looked into over the years like the process of what what I experienced there, and um, there's some great literature on it. It's, it's quite complicated to explain um, because for me, it was like a spiritual awakening. That's the best way I can describe it. And it was like a huge dose of the truth. It was like I'd been chasing, my whole life I'd been chasing the wrong stuff. I wanted, you know, to get the girl, to get the big house, to make it look like to everybody that I was doing really, really well. Um, you know, the, just make everything look really, really good. And, and really not let anybody know how I felt on the inside. And, and I, in this treatment center, I was like, you know, I've got life completely wrong. 
And it was like this huge dose of gratitude. And it was a huge dose of the truth for me that life was just so simple. And it was like my brain just fragmented and separated. And um, what, what were they doing to help you with that? Was that? They were, they were trying to medicate that. Yeah, they were trying to medicate me, but I was refusing the medication because I was like, no, this is something. It was, it was like the matrix type situation where it was like, take the red pill or the blue pill, you know? And, and it was a red pill moment, even though I was saying, I, I don't, you know, don't medicate me. And I remember being curled up. I remember thinking I was back in the Garden of Eden. I was back at the beginning of time. And these are textbook things that happen when people go through what's deemed a psychotic break. Hmm. Um, there's certain... Uh, conceptual things that happen anyway i they called the ambulance actually they called the fire brigade is what they do over here and and the fire brigade came they found me curled up in a bed i was burning hot um i could only feel my heartbeat like once every uh felt like every 20 seconds my heart would just beat and then stop, and I was burning and sweating and burning. I thought I was dying. I thought I was back in the womb, but then I was back in the garden of being. It was really fucking weird. I mean, it was the most insane experience I can ever have ever experienced, bar nothing. Um, the fire brigade came. They carted me off in an ambulance to Santa Monica, UCLA. Um, and I thought there was lots of things going on. And I remember thinking, um, I had to kill myself to save the world. And the, the late show was on with David Letterman on the TV. So I'm lying in the bed at this point. And um, I just remember lots of, now these delusions that were going on are, are basically the myth of the human being's life. So the myth story, whatever that, it's, I know it's a tough one to explain. When we look at religion and the impact of things like religion on on the psyche and we look at um, pride and ego those sorts of things now for me what was getting expressed in the psychotic break was these deep um, dogmatic beliefs about religion so there was lots of heavy jesus scenarios and thinking about i thought i was jesus at one point there were, all this type of stuff was going on and i thought i had to kill myself to save the world and that's what this thing was going on for me and i thought i had to do it live on the late show with david letterman i thought i was being filmed out live and there was a guy in front of me a security guard and he had a gun and I was like okay you've got to take his gun put it in your mouth and pull the trigger and I thought that when I pulled the trigger a flag was going to pop out the end with bang written across it and the director was going to shout cut because I was on a, a, a film um, it sounds absolutely nuts as I'm telling the story now and also you know I felt like my whole life had been this conspiracy because I'd met this woman, you know, she had, she worked in a particular line of work. Her husband's this famous athlete. All of a sudden my social circle was like these famous names were getting, and I just thought, wow, how, how have I ended up here? And now I'm in this rehab. And I thought it was all a conspiracy. None of it was real. It was just a conspiracy to get me to this point here where they could show me the truth. Right. And and in fact, the thing that tripped me over in the end in this rehab was a guy walked past and he shouted, the air is free. And it made me just realize like how much of life I had just taken for granted. 
Mm. And and I, it flipped me out. That one comment was like the, the nail in the coffin. So I was in these four point restraints. I'm oh, sorry, I'm in, I'm in Santa Monica, UCLA. Um, I'm thinking I've got to kill myself. Fortunately, the security guard jumped on me, pinned me down, and these guys put me in four point restraints. And a guy showed up and kept coming around the corner and saying to me, are you willing to tell the truth yet? Are you willing to tell the truth yet? And I was like, fuck off, tell the truth. What are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And it kept going. And this went on. They were injecting me with all sorts of stuff, trying to knock me out. Nothing was working. I was up all night. I was still thinking, like, they're going to murder me. They're going to torture me. Um, and this guy kept walking around the corner saying, are you willing to tell the truth? And eventually I kept thinking, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he came around the corner. I said, all right. And I thought, if I'm going to die, I want to purge my soul before I die. And he sits down next to me and he says, okay, start at the top. So I start just literally confessing everything. Um, I confessed about the addiction. I confessed about the drug use. I, I, at that point, I'd never even talked about alcoholism. I'd not talked about being an alcoholic because that was like always going to be my crutch. And I said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a manipulator. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm a thief and blah, blah, blah. And I remember falling asleep. And when I woke up the next morning from, from that, from when I woke up that next morning till today, I have not felt threatened by alcohol or drugs. Mm. So what, you know, people say, you know, there's, it's like in religious traditions. I'm not religious in any, any way, shape or form, but in religious, they have confession. For me, it was like a confession. Yeah. You know, in 12-step recovery, they have uh, inventory work. For me, it was the first time there was, it was hugely cathartic and, and liberating to have got this shit off my chest. Yeah. And that's the only thing. And it opened up the window of opportunity really for me. And that's, you know, the beginning of what I read earlier is, is me waking up in those four-point restraints. And, yeah. and that's really, you know, they then take me to this... Um, to a nut house and, and so forth. Yeah, right. And how, how long, how long is that process until they let you kind of look after yourself or start looking after yourself? That's the right term or, or trusting you not to? Um, I went into a, so you put me in a secure mental institution because it, and this sort of place was like, the sink was molded to the floor. They took my shoelaces out to stop me hanging myself. Um, I'm sitting there. There was three other patients in there with like, you know, their girlfriend's initials all sliced into their arms. I mean, it was dark. There was chain link cages. There was, I mean, it was just nasty, you know? Mm. Um, but the thing was, I was clear. I was clear headed at the time. And they've put me in this place I got through that. They put me in a dual diagnosis unit because they diagnosed me um, bipolar. So they said, okay, you know, you're based on what happened the other day, the diagnosis is bipolar. Um, they put me in a dual diagnosis unit, which is for mental illness and addiction. Right. And so I go into this. And then I ended up in residential treatment, which was the final stage of 
of the recovery process in, in that environment. To describe bipolar, if you don't mind. You know, I mean, I mean, that's a part of the story is the diagnosis itself. I don't know. What I can say is, is that they classify it, they've got like the diagnostic and statistic manual and they classify these mental illnesses by you have to have, um, you know, elevated moods up and down with, with a psychotic break would deem you, you know, if you have um, audio and visual hallucinations, you're bipolar two. If you have um, schizophrenia with audio and visual, you're bipolar three. So it's like, it's categorized in certain ways. Yeah. Now, I, I know that I had high levels of anxiety is what I had. And they put me on, the doctor actually said, I should never have been on antidepressants because they can trigger a psychotic episode for somebody with bipolar. So I should have been on antipsychotic medication. So it was then that they tried to put me on um, antipsychotic medication and it nearly paralyzed me. I had one of the adverse side effects to it, which is a whole other separate thing. But they, they finally did put me on um, an antipsychotic medication and told me I would be on medication for the rest of my life. Right. But there's, there's, you know, I'd love to hopefully get a chance to finish that story because there's so much hope in that through my own experience that I'm, you know, I'm not medicated today in any way. And, and but I would, I would preface that by saying if people are on medication, don't just throw the medication away. You know, there was, you know, I, I had a chance to explore the diagnosis with a, a psychiatrist later on in the journey. And um, yeah, there were certain things I did and, and recovery steps I took that put me in a position where I could get off that medication. So let, let's wander through that recovery. Just one question yeah. while you're in the, in that sort of early phase, the, the, the lady you talked about, had she distant you or she was, was she coming in to see you? Um, she did come in to see me um, and my mum had flown over from Cyprus. My mum was living in Cyprus. So she flew over. Um, she got a plane blesser and, and turned up and found me in this nut house in Pasadena. It's <laughs> like, I mean, I, I'll never forget seeing a face walking down the, the corridor. I mean, but yeah. So, and, and this other lady that I'd been seeing, she turned up, um, but you could tell it was just, it was, um, yeah. Yeah. So the lots of anger, lots of, lots of disappointment. Um, but yeah. I knew that I needed to put the focus on me. You know, I just didn't have the capacity to even navigate a romantic relationship in any way. Yeah. When you talked earlier, I, I, I was kind of going through my mind of someone on the other side where they've been lied to, they've been manipulated, they've been uh, how you know their thought process when when that comes out is you know do they get angry with I'm sure they get angry with you they maybe get angry with themselves and obviously it's only only they can really tell their story but that was kind of rumbling yeah. through my head that obviously a lot of emotions that side but I, I guess at the phase you're at it's it needs to be focused on yourself and that recovery. Totally. And also, when you dig deep, you start to see that the people we choose often have similar experiences. 
and they have addiction in their family. And we pick people to try and rewrite our childhoods. You know, I, I think I probably reflected back her brother and her father where there was addiction. So there was an energy about me that probably triggered something in her. And maybe there was that, um, you know, if I can fix this guy, it will make things okay here, which is a pattern that I've seen in myself in my own recovery as well with, with sort of romantic relationships and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it, is, it is peculiar how those, in, in many ways, those, uh, how those attractions come because you think about your situation there and that sliding door and going out, there's 80,000 people leaving the stadium and a stadium that arguably shouldn't have been in because of the ticket. And there's that moment where the, the two, two worlds collide that uh, the probability of that is so tiny. Uh, yeah, I yeah. get chills just as you're saying that because there's been so many moments like that. Yeah. Where sorry to interrupt you. No, just, no, no. You're right because it's you think of that stadium and how many addicts are, are in there, tiny amount, and then they, they bump, the moment they bump into you, there's obviously some attraction there because yeah. people start rugby player, and that you know that that yeah, and how how that how they end up together. I, I thought you talked earlier about intergeneration. I, I think that's that's twofold of intergeneration of I guess family and connected friends, but also that that attraction that and, and bad attraction where because you again I, I've listened to a lot of I've talked on a very early podcast. I used to listen to a, a late night radio show where people with uh, with problems uh, of all varying kinds would bring in and typically they had a, an issue in childhood, so their their father was abusive they'd end up with an abusive partner later in life. And it'd be like, how are you attracted to someone further down the road when you met them that first moment? You didn't know they were an abusive person, but just something, there's some something going on that, that brings that that attraction together. And just as much as she's, you know, almost smelt the addiction, you know, it's, yeah. it's, weird. it's, it's so, yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's, um, it's all energy. Yeah. You know, when you look at it through that lens and you realize we attract a reflection of who we are yeah. Yeah. in every area of life. And, and every relationship is an opportunity for me to see myself more clearly and get well and improve, you know. So, so let's talk about the rehab, because like we said earlier on, it's the, the important bit, really. And yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. People understand. So, uh I presume a lot of that rehab as well is about educating yourself. It's, yeah, self-awareness. It's funny as we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm talking about that past stuff and because it, it, it seems so long ago, I almost feel a bit dry talking about it. It's like, it, it, you know, my life is so much about recovery now and, um, and, and, and the importance of it and the importance of doing it on a daily basis. And back at that, that particular time, yeah, you, I mean, you've got people who are educating you in the, in treatments you're getting, I mean, you really, the recovery starts when you leave treatment for me anyway. Um, but, but that, that period, that 30 day period exposed me to 12 step recovery. It exposed me to the disease of addiction. I started to understand, okay, you know, I'm not a bad person trying to get good. I'm a sick person trying to get well now, which took the shame out of it. 
I've got my mum who's now going to Al-Anon and she's starting to, we now have a common dialogue. So we're able to, you know, converse about recovery in a different way. She's able to understand what I went through. You know, I've now got a group of people who are a recovery network, you know, and then obviously when I, when I left treatment, um, you know, I had one phone number when I left treatment. A girl in there had said, um, my friend's coming in. Uh, I think because the idea is that you get a sponsor in 12-step recovery and a sponsor is somebody who guides you through the recovery work. And, and so everybody was like looking for a sponsor and this girl had said to me, oh, this, this guy, I think this guy would be a, a good sponsor for you. I said, who, who is he? And she went on to explain who he was. And it turned out that he, he was the manager of a very well-known girl group in America. And in my head, of course, I'm back down the, that, the, back down the, um, the narcissistic road of like, oh, great, you know, like, how does this look? Um, and funnily enough, his, his number was the only number I had when I left treatment. So I left treatment. I hired a $30 a day hire car. I had a bag of clothes in the back and I had this one phone number and I, I went into LA and I got a, a sober living, um, up in North of LA. And I was literally sharing a room. It was a tiny little room with a twin bed and a bunk bed. So there's a couple of Mexican guys and me in this treatment center out in the sticks. Um, I call this guy and he passes me on to his sponsor. So I called his sponsor and I met with this guy and I mean, he's just the most incredible guy. And, you know, that's really, from that point there, I really got exposed to recovery and, you know, started going to recovery meetings, started reading about, you know, the disease of alcoholism, um, started getting into service, working with other alcoholics. And just, I just immersed myself in recovery. It's like all I had left, but I had a real zest for it. After that experience in rehab, it was like this, this was my opportunity. You know, this, this window of opportunities opened and I, and I had a hunger to, to like get well. And so I would just, I would have gone to any lengths just to, to stay close to recovery and, and, and keep putting that first. And the, uh, a, a sponsor, are they, do, do they come in, I say in all shapes and sizes, do they, do they need to be former addicts? Uh, do they not? Yes, they do. always. And, and that's a good point. You know, they're always people. I mean, they're not charging for their services. It's all, these are basically people in recovery who just further you know, down the suggest, path. sorry. They typically further down the path of that recovery. Yes. Yeah. You know, so when I met my sponsor, he had six years sober, which I thought was absolutely impossible. Like he hadn't, he had this, you know, incredible background and, and disastrous background. Um, but he had the things that I was now looking for, which was, it wasn't all the stuff, the celebrity and the, the money and the power and the prestige. Like this guy was kind. He was compassionate, you know, empathetic. He was all, it was all about relationships for him, you know? And, and I was like, this is completely different, but look at the peace that he has. He has so much contentment and peace. Like that's what I wanted. Right. So really, that's what you're learning to live again sober. Right. And that, that process, I mean, 
obviously it goes on every day, I'm sure to this day, is that, is there a point then when you try to, say the rebuilding's going on, but it's then going back to employment, that type of thing? Yeah, well, I, I couldn't work in, I didn't have a visa to work okay. in America at the time. So the guys at the Sober Living offered me a job digging a sewage pipe for $10 an hour. Mm -hmm. So I got offered a job digging a sewage pipe. I, I then cleaned a trailer park for $10 an hour. Um, but I also, in the background, I wanted to get my personal training accreditation because I've been really interested in personal training. And, um, and I ended up getting that. So that actually gave me the opportunity to do some additional work too. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that, that was a part of it, but wasn't the priority. What I knew was I was able, that period, I mean, some, something happens whereby when you're doing the right thing, people want to help, you know, and, and I had a lot of support um, from a lot of really incredible people. I mean, I had no money, but I was getting by. And the most important thing was I was putting the horse before the cart for the first time in my life. I wasn't chasing after the money or the, the, all these things that I thought would fix me, you know? Yeah. And so for the first time, I'm putting me first and putting my recovery first and everything was just working out. And that, that, that stuff there was really the foundational stuff. And during that, that and certainly the earlier phase, is, is there ever times when you've, whether you're then or now you look back, whether where there was chances you might relapse. I, do you know, I know is the short answer that there was times where I thought about the drinking, the times when I drive past the 7-Eleven, I had that euphoric recall, or, you know, I would be in a certain circumstance. I went to a, a social event really early on, um, with the guy who had put me in touch with my sponsor and it was a big fancy event in Hollywood. And, and I remember going in there and it was just a shit show, but I really wanted to be the fun guy, you know? And one of my things was when I, when I was confronted with people taking away my crutches, like my alcohol and my drugs, I remember thinking, how am I ever going to chat to a girl ever again? How am I ever going to have fun? How am I ever like, how, how am I ever going to do life again? These things that allowed me to, you know, put on, although it was a facade that allowed me to connect in, in an artificial way with other people. Um, but at least it was something. Mm. But now I'm confronted with, right, I've got to learn how to live again sober. So there were times when I thought about it, but I, I didn't feel threatened by alcohol or drugs and haven't done. Mm, no, that's good. Uh, un unbelievable. Un unbelievable. Do you look back? Uh one of the conversations we had with one of the guys when he had and it, around 35, he kind of started to turn himself around. Do you, uh, I think he, I, I could be quoting wrong here, but he had ultimately no regrets for what, what he'd done. And, and do you, do you, when you look back at that, that period, do you regret it or just think it's just part of my life and what I went through and I, I'm a better person today for that experience? I look back, I mean, one of the, the good things in recovery is they have these promises. And one of them is we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So although I don't, I mean, look, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm not, 
I'm not grateful to be an alcoholic, but I'm grateful to know I'm an alcoholic. You know, that, that's a difference. Yeah. And I have a life today that I couldn't have dreamed of. So I look back and I go, everything was exactly the way it was meant to be. I obviously, um, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about my behaviors towards other people and the way I treated them. And the recovery work has given me the opportunity to really go back to all these people and speak to them about the way I behaved and to let them know that it was nothing to do with them. And it was just, I was desperately unhappy. I was angry and I was bleeding all over the people that didn't cut me. Wow. So to be able to go back, but I, I would never want to live my life from a place of regret. I don't regret anything. Yeah, interesting. So, so, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, oh, I didn't. So I didn't, uh, did, were people reciprocal to you when you went back to them? Um, for the most part, yes. I was actually, I, I was 18 months sober um, when I had the chance to go back to, um, to the people um, that I'd, I'd met. And so I flew back to the Isle of Man and so within about a two-week period, I saw maybe, I'm trying to think how maybe, maybe 18, 20 people on the Isle of Man and then people in England and then my mom in Cyprus. So over a, a month period, I was able to go and speak to a lot of people. And, and for the most part, people were very, very welcoming. Um, you know, I found out a few hard truths because I asked them if there's anything else, you know, that you can share with me that I can help you understand. There were some people wouldn't let me pass the front door, which I totally accept too. There was an ex-girlfriend, the one at university who didn't want to um, participate, which is totally fine too. Mm. Um, we have actually connected since then and, and shared a little email, but you know, for the most part, really, really well received and really, really healing. Yeah. And that, that journey, obviously that journey always continues, you know, if, if you give the listeners a, a kind of overview of where you are at now and uh, how things are. And do you still speak to your sponsor? Is that something that goes on forever? How does that work as well? Yeah, that's, um, well, the great thing is I, um, you know, I mean, my life today is all about recovery. So I still, you know, um, the day is about service to others you know I, I work i sponsor a bunch of guys now in three different programs i speak to my sponsor regularly um i go into the jails and speak to the guys um just do as much as i can from a place of service really right and you know meditation is a big part of my life um back playing sports i have a really good balance have a job that i love have, you know little projects that i love working on like just got a really good quality of life right if, if you don't mind me, mind me asking how come you've stayed in the area you are because you talk about your euphoric recall if i can spit that out with yeah. where you've had the last drink where you're 25 minutes down the road to tijuana to where you were previously what was that a conscious decision to stay where no, you were? not at all this is this is pure chance that i've ended up this close to where I originally was. I was, I was in, um, uh, I was in LA and then I was back in, 
I went to do my amends. I ended up in Cyprus. I actually ended up getting refused entry into America when I tried to get back in after I'd done my amends and to people. So I ended up living with my mom in Cyprus for two and a half years. I then ended up back in LA and I was working, um, working in LA. And then I got the company that I was with disbanded and I got offered a job down here, which turned out to be the location that I was in was a little bit further out and then a place came up here. So just by chance, I've ended up, it was literally the opportunities that presented themselves. I ended up like literally it's gone full circle in 13 years, 14 years. I, I suppose it maybe goes back to the point about before that the location ultimately isn't important as is it? it was what was going on inside, inside the old head. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And there must be almost all more uh, pride in regard to the fact that, like you say, you, you have gone back to maybe a place of, that has potentially not the greatest memories that you can go back and not, you know, keep, keep yeah, very narrow. Yeah. Like I said, it doesn't even, I look back, it's like a, another lifetime ago. I look back on those, like, I don't have any, any of that feeling or sensation that's, that's related to it. Um, yeah. Nothing, nothing but positive. I get the impression there's a lot of pride in what you've done since, since chapter one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've had a lot of help is what I would say. Uh, I've had a lot of help. Um, I think learning to put the right things first, you know, redefining success has been a huge part of it. Like I thought success was, you know, I had to, had to have a big house and, and be the best on the sports field and have the most money and, you know, have a good looking wife and 2.4 obedient children. Um, and it, it's like redefining it now, learning that for me, it's about relationships. It's about, you know, can I be a decent friend and a decent partner and um, a decent son? And really, what, what can I contribute back? Those two things, the relationships and what I can give back are really, my, for me, my definition of success. So the other stuff just... Fortunately, I've had a chance and, and life has rebuilt itself, even despite my efforts to, to pull the house down, you know, so I've, mm. I have a really good quality of life, but it's not because of the things that society and culture say are going to make us happy, you know, so it's really been reframing the whole thing has, has given me a completely different life. And people, I mean, we touched on it early, but people who perhaps have some and listen to this uh, and have some relation to, 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 and can go, oh, I feel a bit like that, or I've had that kind of experience. I guess, I guess the message is speak to people, whether it's someone you don't know or someone you do know. About getting help. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, finding people really want to help, people care, you know, and I know there's when, when you're in the addiction, it's very hard because you can't see it for what it actually is. But being able to, to find the right people, to find people that you, you trust and that you connect with and that help is available. That's the big thing that 
you know, mental illness in itself, lots of shame, lots of stigma around it, but also, you know, lots of freedom on the other side of it too. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, uh, I suppose, a, me- a message, isn't it? It's, it's, again, I'd imagine at times it's very hard for people to come out and talk about it. So, uh, but to get to jump that, scale that wall and then have that freedom on the other side. Is in, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're right in understanding that uh, I think we touched on when we when we were WhatsApp and that you're looking to do an audio version of your book. Yes, that's next. I was due to do it this time last year, but obviously life took a different direction <laughs> with, with the current world situation. So it wasn't it wasn't as easy just to go to LA and, and shoot the audio. But yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a side project is to to do that in the next probably six months. I think would be realistic. And super proud of the book, I assume. Yeah, that's huge, you know, huge accomplishment. It took me eight years. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that in itself has been a, um, a project, hugely cathartic. And um, yeah, it was nice just to go, you know what, this is, this is my journey. You know, this is who I am, good, bad and ugly. And if somebody can learn something from it, or gain some wisdom without having to go through it, then it's just a massive win. Yeah. You know? So, what prompted the book? Was that something you thought you wanted to do, or did someone give you the idea? Or I, I it was suggested to me. You know, we, we end up sharing in recovery stories and stuff, and a couple of guys who were in entertainment in LA said, "You gotta, you gotta write the book because it's, you know, it's very unique. You grew yeah. up on the Isle of Man. You went." You know, you've been all over, you've ended up in LA, look at the circumstances now, and then the recovery element of it too. Um, so yeah, that, that's what motivated me. Just I also felt like I had a responsibility. You know, when I got sober and, and started to recover, it was like I, you know, part of the step work and recovery work is to pass on, you know, the message is to help help the next guy. And I thought, what better way than and to put it in a book and, and I enjoyed it I, you know I enjoyed writing I laughed every day writing so I, I you know I enjoy doing it yeah yeah so, yeah. so that's uh, to remind everyone and then those watching on YouTube uh, hunting hunting concrete lions uh, you can find it and yeah buy it whether and I mean we've been two hours we haven't even scratched the surface of the book is the reality so whether you've listened to the podcast and want to get dig right into all the stories that you, you know, there's, there's so many in there, buy it, whether it's for someone, you know, uh, as a present or, or a, just a, a gift and, uh, yeah, go, go, go and purchase. Uh, and we'll certainly on our channel, we'll let you know when, when, uh, I'm sure Michael will let us know when it's on audio as well. And we'll, we'll share that. Good, we appreciate you ch- ch- sharing your story. I think we've spoken to a number of, uh, stories similar that interlink uh, the same theme and, uh, we uh, we find it quite humbling that people are willing to share their story as well. Uh, I think it's it's so easy to kind of go on, to get, I suppose, get move on with your own life and just go, well, I've, it was a problem in the past. I don't get, you know, but that ability to share it and want to help others. I think uh, I mentioned the word pride earlier. I'm sure you take a lot of pride, and uh, and I appreciate you spending a couple of hours of your time just talking to us through the through your journey. Well, thank you very much for having me. No, no pleasure. Do you want to check us out, Matt? Yep. So wherever you're listening or watching today, please like, subscribe, share, and leave those five-star reviews pretty please on social media, Facebook, or the N-Word podcast.
Twitter is mword podcast for the number one, and on Instagram we are the mword iom. Thanks for letting us into your sexy ears. It's word out from Mon and word out from Matt. <laughs>